I was going to say, I didn't want to jinx it, but I feel like, uh, as a rule, we need to, as soon as someone says something positive, just shut the podcast down. <laughs> and just, all right, we're out for the day. Done. Yeah. Five minutes in today, we're done. Next week will be longer, hopefully, and just we'll call it, we'll call it a week. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. On this show, we bring together several young scholars to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. I'm Nicholas Hayne, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio are a few of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard. Or am I? <laughs> and Kurt Gunner. That's me, hi. Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. Don't forget to also view our latest post, which explains the fundamentals of the, quote, liberal international order. Our third episode begins with the start of a brand new year and the end of the Obama administration. It would be an understatement to say that the newly minted Trump administration has several major policy differences with Obama, but few differences are as obvious as those surrounding the state of Israel. Since its founding in 1948, and especially since the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, the United States and Israel have enjoyed an unusually close relationship. There are several reasons for this, for this close relationship, including robust security cooperation, similar attitudes towards Russia, and the very strong support that Israel gets from America's evangelical population. But lately, this relationship has been strained. Much of this is due to the attitudes of the Arab states towards Israel. Though several nations like Jordan and Egypt have made peace with Israel, most others are still hesitant to do so until the underlying Palestinian-Israeli conflict is resolved. Former President Obama in particular has been critical of Israel's policies towards the Palestinians, and just recently allowed a resolution in the United Nations Security Council to pass which condemns Israel's actions in Palestine. This was remarkable since it was the first time the United States allowed this vote to go through having always rejected it in the past. Now, the Trump administration looks to reaffirm America's commitment to the, to the relationship with Israel. So, what does this mean for the future of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Recent peace negotiations have all fallen flat, and the various sides appear farther apart than at almost any other time in their histories. Israeli international politics, Israeli internal politics, are also becoming increasingly right-wing, with more and more people viewing a proposed two-state solution as a lost cause. What are the prospects of peace in the Middle East? So I'm actually most interested in the move of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which uh, we kept going back and forth. It, I, at first I thought, you can't be serious. This is a very, very stupid thing to do. Um, not even, I mean, discounting all the arguments over uh, Jerusalem as, as the capital of, of Israel or Palestine, just setting all that stuff aside, um, just making that your first move is just like, uh, you know, tossing a, a lit match into a powder keg. But it sounds like there are a, multiple anonymous sources within the administration saying that on the first full working day, uh, Trump's first day in office, because, of course, um, as president, you get weekends off, so you don't have to work on the weekend. But uh, when Trump sits down on Monday, that's what he's going to do. He's going to move the embassy from uh, the, the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and then see what happens next. I don't know how that's going to make anything 
better. I think it's going to be a disaster. But I don't know what you guys think about that. To me, it seems like the sides are now clear. We are officially endorsing whatever violence and settlements Israel decides to uh, to carry out. Which is kind of strange because I I do know that he pivoted eventually to the Israeli side. But when he was talking in the primaries, he was... I don't want to say anti-Israel, because that would be wrong. He wasn't anti-Israel, but he was definitely lukewarm towards Israel at best. He was always America first, always talking about how we're getting a raw deal on these security cooperation things. And I don't know if he viewed Israel as a really strong cooperator in anti-terrorist activities. That just could be because he's unaware of U.S.-Israeli cooperation on that sort of stuff, but he eventually pivoted. I think that was due to trying to get the Republican base in line with him. And when he moves this, uh, when he moves our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, I'm not sure what will come after that. He specifically said in his inauguration address that he's not going to do anything unless it specifically benefits the American people. This might be a bomb to... Israel, maybe, hey, look what we did, now be friends with us, but I don't know if he will actually actively participate in anything Israel does. Well, what I could imagine would happen is the Third Intifada, but um, that actually might be going a little bit too far. But, I mean, that is obviously going to inflame tensions, and how in the world could we expect to have any sort of, not not even a peace settlement, just any sort of common ground that we can try to start some semblance of a peace settlement in the future if we do something like this. Well, and you mentioned Third Intifada. Uh, I've heard from multiple pretty serious journalists that that would be the result, that the already battered Palestinian people would take this as, you know, the final insult and the final uh, proof that there is no help coming from Washington. There is no support from that quarter. They must take action uh, in the most uh, aggressive and personal way they, they can and not rely or wait for anyone else to bail them out, um, which is a realistic and pragmatic response to what seems to be a really impulsive and thoughtless decision. But yeah, I don't know. It it just seems like one of those things, it kind of reminds me of the um, one China policy in Taiwan when, uh, you know, he took the, when Trump took the congratulatory call from, um, I'm not sure if it was the Taiwanese prime minister or how that, who, the who president. called president. Um, but, you know, you get that call and personally, I think the one China policy is a little bit silly, but it's not so much there was no logic behind taking the call. He just did it. And then later someone else told him, oh, hey, there are consequences to that action. And I think this is the same thing. I think someone suggested he move it from the, the embassy from Palestine, Tel Aviv to Palestine or to Jerusalem. And Trump said, yeah, it sounds great. And then later on, someone explains, oh, hey, that might be really bad. And then he decides, no, we're going to stick to our guns. Uh, because to back down would be to prove weakness. And so why why do it? I am kind of skeptical about, and I know that it is, and it has been said that it, we might have a third intifada happen because of this move. I am a little skeptical about that, because as John Kerry said about, and I can't, uh, was it the breakdown of the peace process or something about those? But the third intifada would come from that, and it never materialized. And part of that reason isn't that what Israel's doing isn't looked at as absolutely wrong in the eyes of the Palestinians, but the Palestinians themselves are changing. When they look at these sorts of problems anymore, you have a large section of these younger kids that are being brought up 
and saying, well, we know we're never going to be, we might not have our own story anyways, so we're just going to be try to integrate and be part of Israel. Uh, that two-state solution will never happen. Israel will never let it happen. So we will try to integrate. And they're trying more political ways of getting around this. So I'm not sure that they are going to... I, there could definitely be another popular fight happen, but I'm not sure it'll get to the scale of Intifada. And I could definitely be wrong about that, though. I could imagine that happening in Gaza, at least. Yeah, it kinda, uh, yeah. yeah, it depends on the, on the location. I, I, you're probably... I mean, as far as I can tell, you're probably right, Stephen, but it's one of those tricky things where uh, you expect, based on past actions, a certain result, and you wonder if the Palestinian people are not just so beaten down by, you know, I guess generations now, almost, of of this uh, unceasing oppression and, and open-air jailing that, at some point, what do you do? Um, I think there will always be violent splinter cells, but... You might be right. This might just be one more thing, and you just kind of have to roll with it and find a way to live within the constraints of uh, of your quasi half state that you've been given. And I think it's kind of strange as well that uh, I forget who it was a uh, article on foreign affairs that Nick had actually pointed out to us, and one of the main theories in that is that the settlements actually aren't even an issue that it's just the Palestinians breaking all these agreements. That's the entire issue. And I thought it was a fairly racist issue, actually. But it goes to show that many of these Israelis don't even view the settlements as a starter issue. They don't view it as any sort of a problem. They don't view anything that they are doing as the problem. They honestly view it as we would be in a perfect area or we would be in a perfect political solution if the Palestinians would keep up their end of the bargain, which obviously isn't correct. That's part of the bargain was we didn't build, or uh, Israel wouldn't build any more settlements. So I think there's a lot of self, I don't know, not self-fooling, but... Well, it's the kind of thing where, I mean, if one side is saying, this is a fundamental issue for me, you can't ignore that. And that translates to settlements, but, and it might be difficult to admit this, but it also might come back to the issue of, I guess, Palestinians recognizing that Israel is a Jewish nation or whatever, you know, that as their demand. If they are making that as a fundamental demand, it does seem like, I guess, that is an issue then because they're making it one, you know, not unlike the settlements. You can't deny that the settlements are an issue because they are, but yet one side is still saying, well, that's not really an issue. Well, if one side is saying it is, then I guess it kind of is. And it, and it, puts, all, it puts all the impetus on the oppressed group to do the you know the effort the work to to make everything happen and then the the oppressor the larger more powerful group can just say well i didn't know you guys cared about that you didn't make us think about it so we just let it go you know it's like yep. it's, it's absurd oh, definitely yeah i definitely see that yeah. well and the, the part of the israel being jewish as well i think that's absolutely even if it is a big issue for them, that is something that should be fought every step of the way because that's basically saying fifty percent of the people that live in this country are not now are now not citizens of this country because we've decided that they're not because of some arbitrary standard. And yes, it is religious religion, and religion is a big issue for a whole bunch of people. It is still an arbitrary measure. It's like go if if Iran was to say, hey. All the Jews and Christians in this country are no longer Iranian. They don't have a voice in Parliament anymore. Or if the United States was to say, if Donald Trump was to say that 
this is a Christian country, and therefore no one else is a citizen of this country. That's what's interesting is that you can set you can look at the history of Israel and look at the history of the Ottoman Empire in that time and then the area and say, well, there's traditional, traditionally these religions in this region, but the reality is this is a state now. This is a nation, and these are political actions. These are not actions done by, you know, this isn't a collection of, of rabbis and, and, you know, different religious leaders sitting in a room and deciding, well, this is how we decide this. This is, these are politicians. These are state actors. And so to claim otherwise is kind of silly, but I guess that kind of is the way that Israel has run their business the past 10, 15 years. You know, you make drastic and aggressive political decisions, and then you clothe that in either religious or uh, kind of traditional language and say, well, this is our homeland. Like, well, no, you, you took it from someone with guns, and now it's your homeland. Now this is your, those are your settlements. You know what I mean? And so it's kind of a, it's tricky because you don't want to tell people to get out, right? But then you also don't want to say to Palestinians, well, sorry. Uh, this was a religious decision, and you guys are just going to have to figure it out. And, you know, as Stephen was alluding to, all the non-Jewish Israelis, what are they? I mean, they're just going to be there and hang out, I guess, right? Yeah, and this isn't to say that that the Palestinians should just, you know, roll over and say, well, yep, okay, we give up that, that Israel is a Jewish nation, because that is one of the only cards that they have left to play is withholding that. But the insistence of Palestinians making that claim, does that not show that, I mean, Israel isn't really that serious about having a peace settlement? Yeah, I that, think it does. I agree completely, yeah. And I think that's the problem, is that they are, they've reached a, what would be termed as a, Palestine's reached a mutually hurting stalemate, or a, a hurting stalemate for them, but Israel has not reached a hurting stalemate. Israel could continue on this path for as long as they really want because they are not the ones being oppressed. And yes, every once in a while, an Israeli citizen will die due to terrorist attacks inspired by their policies in that area. But that's not going to change anything they do because it's incredibly unsympathetic. But two or three people or even 20 people a year that die from terrorist attacks is not an existential security crisis, and they can live with it. And in fact, they benefit from it in a way. I mean, when these attacks occur, what does it do? It rallies up the base to rally around the Israeli flag, and you know, away they go with whatever they need to accomplish at that time. Plus, I mean, with as every day goes by, more and more settlements are created, thus you know, increasing the amount of land, valuable land that Israel would have. It's uh, it's really hard because it's, it's impossible to not sound callous. And I think um, anytime you're describing this conflict, uh, there's this dance you have to do between saying, yes, of course, some Israelis die from these terrorist strikes. And yes, of course, it's, that's horrible. And we shouldn't do that. Uh, but I mean, the only way to honestly to, to be fair about it, and I've had to have this conversation on Facebook with um, uh, with a friend who has family in Israel, uh, was literally just look at the numbers, you know, and. And she was saying, well, you know, we survive rocket strikes every day. And this was years ago. But her point was that they live in terror constantly. And Palestinians don't understand that. And I said, well, and I just sent her an article. Like, here are the number of Palestinians who died in the past years. Here's the number of Israelis who died. And it's like thousands and dozens, right? And, and the point is not to say that your suffering does not count, or even that it's less than, and therefore we should ignore it. But just to say, 
you are asking someone who is suffering in an, in an objectively similar, but also objectively far numerically worse way, you're asking them to sympathize with you and you're not sympathizing with them. And that's something that you have to work on internally that no one can force you to do. And I think that a lot of this actually comes back to as well, um, a misunderstanding in the Middle East and the idea that we can apply a Westphalian sort of or solution to this, where you have one nation, one state. And that's fundamentally impossible in today's world. The Westphalian model of a country being one state, one bordered country, and one people, one nation within that state is wrong because there's too much, inter especially in the former Ottoman Empire, there are too much intermixing in everywhere because whether you want to say that the Jews were here first or the... Um, uh, the Palestinians were here first. They are both here now. And if you apply a Westphalian model, if you apply one state, and that's the state that, one nation, and that's the nation that rules, you are going to oppress another people. And I agree with you, Kurt, that it is very callous to talk about this, but we also have to understand that as political scientists, and I consider myself a political scientist, you have to be callous, and you have to look at these situations completely objectively and you have to know that what you are saying is going to sound absolutely heartless to some people and that it's still right it's i mean it wasn't so much to say that you shouldn't say it just that like this is just something that i always have in the back of my head you know this sounds awful and like i you know i don't want to be dismissive of someone's pain or, or their hurt and you know uh, as a turkish historian the armenian genocide comes up a lot and uh, that political uh, kind of flashpoint has got to the situation where you can't, no one can talk about it anymore without just everyone on all sides hurting dramatically. And we've lost the ability to, to empathize. And it's, it's a real problem. Um, I think for Israel, Palestine, it's pretty similar. I think both sides are so um, calcified in their views and in their suffering that it's hard for them to wrap their head around the other group also suffering. And, you know, I think I think for Nick pointing out that, you know, the politics in Israel are becoming more and more right wing. Um, I almost want to say, uh, you know, within Israel, the politics are right wing. But how does that compare to the global Israeli diaspora? Um, or is it pronounced diaspora? I never know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I usually read that word, don't say it out loud. But, you know, how does the diaspora respond to that? I, In my experience, a lot of the um, Israel, Israelis in the United States that I've encountered have been increasingly liberal about um, Israeli politics, and yet they're they don't have as big of a voice. So I don't know how that's going to work long term. But you know, living in Israel versus living outside of Israel seems to have a big impact on your politics. Yeah, that's the thing. They can be as liberal as they want, but at the end of the day, who cares? I mean, it just it doesn't matter for the state of Israel itself. They're just not going to implement policies that non-citizens want them to essentially that does kind of bring me to and what i think is probably a very unpopular question but since all these sides seem to be so you know dug in and the situation seems so intractable at what point is the united states just spending too much time on this is it too much of a distraction from the almost i'd say greater concerns of the middle east when countries are falling apart and burning and going to war with each other at what point do we look at this crisis and go, I guess that just can't be a priority. I mean, I know that's not necessarily a popular question, but 
you know, maybe maybe it's just a distraction at a certain point from if the entire rest of the Middle East is going to war with each other and is, you know, up for grabs for other great powers. And I think that's more of an argument for increasing your diplomatic size. <laughs> Personally, if you're going to... There are a lot of crises in the Middle East, and I think that's a good argument for increasing the number of Middle East hands that you might have working on the problem. It does... I don't think because there are more problems that other problems have to necessarily take a super backseat, but I understand what you're saying. I really do. I mean, wasn't that, I mean, looking at like the old Camp David stuff, you know, I think, uh, and this might, we're kind of looping back to Trump here, but I think um, any, any, the natural instinct is to say, well, someone else should come and, and negotiate or mediate, but you know, who has any moral standing in the Middle East? You know, uh, what global powers have any moral standing left? You know, Russia, uh, I can't imagine anyone who has known someone in Syria ever trusting uh, Russian diplomats again. Um, Turkey is doing through their own thing, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, the United States elected a fascist demagogue um, who just the other day casually mentioned, maybe we'll have another chance to get Iraqi oil. And like now everyone in Iraq is kind of probably on alert because, wait, a president just said that? We have to take that seriously. Um, and Germany is dealing with their own uh, fake news uh, election problem with, with uh, Angela Merkel. So I do not know who has any moral standing in the Middle East to, to step in and help. Let's go now to current for our next segment on constitutional changes in Turkey. All right, so um, there's a lot going on, and uh, <laughs> I am I am I think two days behind in news or one day behind, um, and so I don't know if there was a new vote today uh, or yesterday. But from my understanding is that the um, AK Party or or um, uh, AKP in Turkey has kind of solidified, has made a pretty bold power grab, uh, supported by um, its kind of coalition of other parties, uh, that led to, there was actually a brawl in Turkish parliament, um, a, a female uh, Fisticops. Uh, politician, yeah, she handcuffed herself to a podium in protest of what was going on, and and people just started fighting and swinging, and I mean, if you look online, you can find the gifts there, uh, they would be entertaining if they weren't so scary, It's I think it's a situation where if you didn't know what they were fighting about, if they were fighting about like, oh, this representative gave his his constituents a bunch of money from and stole from that group, ha ha ha, corruption, instead of like, oh, this is really pretty bad. Um, essentially, what uh, President uh, Erdogan did um, was he the constitutional changes that he is he is trying to push through right now would allow him to dissolve parliament if he wished um, at any point. He could call a six month uh, state of emergency which, as we saw with the coup attempt, leads to pretty dramatic um, arrests and sweeping government changes. Uh, he would have incredibly strong veto power over parliamentary decisions, and parliament would no longer have the ability to petition the president directly. They'd have to go through his ministers and his assistants. He would dissolve the prime minister post and create a vice president that would be under him. It's, uh, it is as complete and thorough of a power grab as as you can see in a modern democratic system 
Uh, and I mean, you know, the supporter, his supporters are saying, well, you know, considering how ISIS is so dangerous, this gives us the flexibility to quickly enact needed changes, um, which, you know, I can see that if I squint and I turn my head a little bit, I can see why they might think that, especially because ISIS is, and, you know, and they're just announcing recently, uh, to urging their followers to kill any Turk they encounter anywhere, uh, to kind of increase the pressure on Turkey. So I, you know, I understand that fear, but, but yikes, guys! I mean, this is just scary stuff. And so my question, when mm-hmm. I hear all that, is what differentiates the presidency of Turkey now from the king of France in the 1600s? Oh, I mean, if if this pass, and so it's still in the process of passing. It passed the first wave of votes, and that's what I'm when I say two days behind. I'm not sure if they voted again, but um, essentially. Uh, he would have a monarchy type power. Uh, I can't, I mean, the, the restraints that, the, the restraints that exist can all be waved away. You know, parliament could vote and pass a bunch of votes that say, you know, all right, we're going to re, 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 uh, engineer the voting system. We're going to do all these things. Not only can Erdogan veto those things or call a state of emergency, uh, if he wants to, to override this election. Oh, he can also move election dates to whenever he wants. <laughs> why not? You know, why not? Uh, setting all those things aside, if Parliament gets too uppity, he can simply dissolve it. Which, honestly, like the last That's time the that most ha- terrifying thing I think I heard. The last that time that happened, dismissed- right? Exactly. I mean, the last time that that this happened, uh, a, a Parliament was dissolved was 1876, and that was a different uh, uh, Ottoman Turkish constitutional crisis. But for a lot of Turks, this is like the this is the last step in their guy in Erdogan's. Uh, uh, you know, move from one of them to their supporter in, in, in power. But for a lot of uh, more liberal uh, constitutionalist Turks, more secular Turks, uh, this is a very scary time indeed. And um, recently, he uh, threw uh, Salahattin Demirtas, who's the um, head of the HDP, which is the, the, the Kurdish People's Party, uh, was arrested uh, on made-up charges. Um, the prosecutors under, from Erdogan's party are pushing for a 145-year sentence. So they're not only jailing journalists, they're not only jailing anyone who uh, insults Erdogan uh, on social media, they're jailing their political opponents, and and these trumped-up charges are, they might actually get through. So it's kind of like, and the Hedepe was like the most liberal, they were supporting gay rights, they were supporting um, Kind of liberal rights in a way that uh, liberal uh, progressive issues in a way that we hadn't seen in Turkey for some time, uh, but he basically had the gall to win nine percent of the vote and talk about how uh, they're working, they're they're you know progressing forward and also to be Kurdish. And while the PKK has been doing some other things going on uh, back and forth, he simply just got caught in the crossfire. And I, you know, I don't see a way out of this. This is the different. This is basically like imagining if Trump knew every angle of the American democratic system and had a long-term plan to consolidate power versus being very stupid, right? Like, it, in order to take these kind of steps, requires a kind of genius and and, and intelligence and effort. And Erdogan has been relentless in, in pursuing his goals here. I guess I have a twofold question. Mm-hmm. One, where's the public? On this, is this something where the party is pushing and the pu- they're pulling the public, or is the public kind of pushing and the party's kind of pulling? And a second question: 
do you think this leads to a, and this might be for a question we have to talk about in a couple seconds here, but does this lead to a strongman government where you basically are setting Turkey up to fail in the long run because no one's going to be able to march into this new king position with the same authority, the same power as Erdogan have you, mm-hmm. or Erdogan has, and you will never be able to replicate his type of stronghold over it. So you're setting the government up to fail if you're putting all the levers of power in that one position. I mean, you're 100% right. And I, I think that's one of those one of those long-term thought processes that um, uh, tyrannical authoritarian leaders never seem to have. And I'm actually reminded of, you know, Iran had this problem back in the day where you consolidate power in the hands of a particular shah, a particular <laughs> president. And things are going great for a minute. And, you know, and and I'm not saying that Erdogan is an inherent evil person. I think he's very uh, focused on consolidating his own power over the needs of his people. Um, But if he were to look at this in the long term, uh, he would easily notice that, yeah, as soon as I step down or die uh, of a heart attack or something, you know, or I'm assassinated because of my enemies, um, there is no natural leader. The party does not have. Uh, a kind of strong setup for someone else to step in and take over. There's no protege in waiting. Um, there's his family, who's all already had some kind of different kinds of scandal, but you know, that's not the, that's not his concern right now. His concern is his his paranoia over political opponents and dispersing protests and making sure that this constitution gets passed. He's been trying to do this for you know eight years now. It finally, is getting done. Um, and from what I'm hearing. Um, there have been plenty of protests against this, and police have been dispersing them. And I think we'd hear more about this in the United States if we weren't in the middle midst of our own uh, dramatic protests against uh, a kind of tyrannical government. But yeah, I, I don't, I do not see a way out only because Parliament is being so hamstrung, and the AK Party controls every element. Uh, you know, they have their coalition, which is such a large majority that literally just have to get the votes in. And it's all it's all happening. There's no way to stop it. I wonder at what point do we um, kind of reassess the situation? Because I'm, I'm looking, I'm thinking of um, kind of the quote, you know, you work with the army that you have, not the one that you want. You, But here we have to work with the turkey that we have and not the turkey that we want. Like we might not want it to go to this more dictatorial direction. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, do we just realize that this is how it's going to go, and there's not too much the United States could do to stop that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do we accept that? Like, how how would we salvage this U.S.-Turkish relationship? And would that involve accepting that Turkey will not be as democratic of a society as we want? Because we already we already have alliances with with dictators and with kings. Mm-hmm. Why would this be so much different? Well, if I could, real quick, I will. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm interject and say that I think that this is very important and that we should keep up strong connections with it and try to support them just because as we were kind of saying uh, this I could I don't see Turkey turning out to be anything but a failed state under this sort of political rule and Turkey being a failed well I a weak incredibly weak state and without that center of power there I mean, we've seen what happens when countries like Iraq fall, when we thought that Iraq was, oh, well, they're already fallen anyways, they're all corrupt in there and whatnot, and then they actually fall, and you see the power void that it leaves. Right. right. I don't think the Middle East could take a power void. It's, and that's going to be in yeah. the Balkans as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's what that's what's so, what's so shocking here, is that um, 
I, you know, I think failed state might be a bit strong, but there's no reason to not to rule that out at this point uh, down the road. And I think um, for the United States, if Obama had a third term, uh, too bad, didn't get that worked out. I mean, I was waiting for him to take our guns and to install himself as dictator. He didn't quite get that done. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't follow through <laughs> in his campaign promises to me. But uh, <laughs> but um, uh, if he had a third term, I think what would have been interesting would be to see how Erdogan responded to the fact that during the coup, uh, which, by the way, the European Union has argued was conclusively not done uh, by uh, Petula Gulen uh, remotely in Pennsylvania. Um, but, you know, I think if Obama had been around, the fact that the United States sat on their hands and did nothing, made no comments, were very vague as the coup was happening, because I think for a lot of American lawmakers, it was kind of like, yeah, it'd be nice if Erdogan was gone. A lot of Turks had that in the back of their heads, too, even though it was also terrifying and scary to have uh, this group, uh, you know, this very violent uh, schism. But, you know, the fact that it's not Obama, the fact that it's Trump, um, you know, it, it changes the calculus a bit. And I think for Erdogan, uh, he's already he already threw the one of the uh, businessmen who was working with Trump and, and the Trump uh, hotel company in jail on trumped up charges. I keep saying trumped up. It's not on purpose. It's just a word they use often. But <laughs> but uh, he already threw that guy in jail. And to me, this is like pretty easy. Like, oh, this is a this is not blackmail, but it's something like it. You know, it the guy you're used to working with is is in jail. Uh, and if you want to, if you want us to do that bombing run you asked us to do, uh, we sure would like some money on the back end or something else that you want, and we'll let this guy out of jail because they control every element of the justice system. So, I think for Erdogan, who is nothing if not a a practical and and calculating guy, he's going to wait and see what what America does next. And for the United States, you know, I think you can easily work with Erdogan, especially for someone like Trump who has no qualms with authoritarians. The question is, does working with this authoritarian group um, undermine, you know, the other neighboring groups in the region? Uh, does that set a, send a signal to progressives in the Middle East that, hey, uh, we would rather work with your Assad's and uh, your Erdogan's than your elected leaders? Because those guys, we don't know so much. You know, and that's kind of what I'm looking at all this and just thinking, OK, I guess we have two options here. We either you know, just lament the end of democracy in Turkey, or we just <laughs> take a hard look at it and go, this is what it is. Yeah. How do we respond? Yeah. And I mean, the the other question, and again, this is different because Trump is in charge now. If Obama had a third term, uh, we were we, it was already late, but we should have been taking action against the journalists that had been thrown in jail in Turkey. You know, hundreds of journalists, hundreds of academics, we might be getting to thousands at this point, are in jail on made up charges um, of sedition or whatever else government decides that they did so and in looking at the uh, the situation on the ground in turkey kurt is it a fair assessment to say that i mean a lot of people are not happy with the direction that erdogan is taking the country it's well it's hard because um my family is pretty secular and they live in the cities and um you live in the major city you know, ankara izmir uh, well ankara is different because it's government capital but you know istanbul izmir and ankara are all uh, pretty cosmopolitan places, and you see um, a lot of frustration there. But the best comparison is actually George W. Bush. Uh, so when he won his first election, it was a coalition of evangelical Christians, businessmen, political conservatives, and then you know a mix of other people here and there, social conservatives, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and 
for a lot of people, they looked at Bush as someone who spoke and acted like them, like people they knew. And for Erdogan, you know, he grew up, he played third division soccer in Turkey. He was a he was a scrappy, rough guy from a scrappy, rough neighborhood. When he speaks, and, and Turkey, Turkish is a very particular language for this, um, the language he uses, the word, the word choice, the cadence, uh, is the same thing as kind of like a southern accent or a midwestern accent. And if you see the person, except the, the difference in Turkey is, is much starker between cities and rural districts um, in language. And when you see the person uh, who's president uh, or prime minister when he's prime minister speaking your language with your voice, talking about your issues, uh, his wife has a, has a headscarf, you know, um, you, it feels like he has respect for the, your needs as a citizen that you haven't seen for the past 10, 15 years. And um, it was very much a, a backlash to that, uh, to the, the previous more secular seeming um, uh, governments. But that doesn't mean that there's not 48% of the country who's horrified, you know, or even 52%. You know, the, the numbers are hard to tell, but in, in my experience and what, what I've seen, it's pretty even split. Uh, even though what I tend to see in the cities is people getting drunk and complaining about, you know, oh, well, you know, friends that I had from, from, from studies, you know, studying back in the day saying, well, this guy, is, he's a maniac, but he'll be gone soon, right? They were all just very assumed that he would be gone eventually, but that he was also a very serious threat. And so I didn't see his supporters up close because much like our bubbles in the United States, I wasn't going out to the rural vi villages. I wasn't going out to the more religious districts in the city. I was hanging out with my family, I was getting coffee, playing backgammon, I wasn't going to the right tea shops, you know. Do we think that there is a possibility of, say, you know, a Turkish spring, to use that term? Like, do you think that that Turkish anti-Erdogan sentiment would reach a point where people would be out on the streets and then the United States would have to either, you know, put up or shut up on that case, either say, yep, we support these protests or we're behind Erdogan 100%. You know, I, I wonder if that didn't already happen. You know, I wonder if the uh, Gezi Park protests weren't the Turkish Spring, and they were aggressive and consistent, and they were they were shut down pretty aggressively by the government, and that might have been the moment. I, I, I wouldn't put it past, I think, the Turkish people are very, very passionate about their democracy and, and their role as, um, as a, a, a secular republic. Um, I wouldn't put it past the Turkish people to mount several more uh, pervasive and, and aggressive resistance campaigns, you know, protest campaigns. Um, I just don't know that there's any way, you know, every single time that there's been a protest campaign, it's just led to Erdogan getting more, using that to develop more uh, power and a stronger hold on the police force and justice system. And, in, in you know, I think back in the day, there were arguments like, well, they can't arrest us all if we protest. And I, th I think Erdogan has been like, actually, I totally can. Like, <laughs> I 100% can do that, and I will do that. And, you know, we've seen people thrown in jail for blog posts, for Facebook posts, for Twitter posts, um, for sideways comments made here and there. Uh, so it's not unlike pre-Iranian revolution or post-Iranian revolution, that kind of air of mistrust and fear and there's no alternative. There's no, uh, you know, Ralph Nader waiting in the wings to step in. You know, there's no third party or second party. And there, I mean, there is, but the CHP, the CHP has been pretty handicapped lately with, with relatively weak leadership. So even if they were to protest, who would they install to take over? It would just be 
we don't like you and we want someone else, but we don't have someone else just yet. Maybe Demirtas, the, the Kurdish guy, but he's in jail. So I can't quite get that. Do you think of... the rest of the country would be able to get behind a Kurd? Oh, I mean, right now, no. But I think I think he has I think he has more support than we expect because even if it's not if it's not support even if not people voting for him I think he was very well respected um, by other politicians as a really honest uh, progressive figure and you know a really smart guy just a really smart and kind guy and I remember hearing someone who had talked with him personally and just remarking on how sharp he was just really clever and on t- like very well read and on top of the news and. Um, I think they were, this is an academic speaking, um, and he was saying, he was just very, very impressed by uh, this guy's mind. And I thought, well, that's, that bodes well for him, assuming that we were dealing with regular political rules, not this ridiculous charade we've got going on right now. So yeah, so in, in conclusion, things are going to get really bad in Turkey. They're already really bad. They're going to get worse. Um, there is no uh, short-term end in sight. I think it's going to take dramatic and, uh, uh, you know, just massive protests around the country to make any kind of dent in the laws that are being passed in these next few days. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Well, I guess speaking of the loss of a moderate voice in the country, um, Stephen, would this be a good time to transition to Iran? Sure, I'll do the, I'll do the happy and... <laughs> Uh, nice Iran, because that's where we're at in our world, where we use Iran as a uplifting story. <laughs> All right, so one of the big things that has happened in Iran lately is the death of um, Ayatollah Rafsanjani, who was one of the original founders of the Islamic Republic of Iran, was a really good friend of both Ayatollah Khomeini and Ayatollah Khomeini and Khomeini. Uh, but he has died recently, and he was one of the very notable, I don't want to call him a reformist figure, but he is a very notable political figure in Iran, and someone that got a lot of different stuff done in terms of moving, he was able to arbitrate between the conservatives and between the liberals because of his position and his history. With his death, there's been a lot of people coming out, and I know that I've, uh, seen several articles. One of them called him a corrupt hardliner. The next one called him a uh, liberal stalwart. The next one said that he was a moderate. The next one said again that he was a conservative. So, I mean, nobody re- everyone... A lot, of, on... uh, a lot of alternative facts going around. Oh, there. yeah. A lot <laughs> of alternative facts. And it really depends on where you're viewing us from. The articles coming out of Iran show him more as a I guess, a moderate, a someone who is a pragmatist is what I always called him when I read about him, because he's very pragmatic in his dealings. If you're reading the Iranian hardline press, he's a liberal. He's just super liberal. And if you're reading the uh, Iranian press that comes out of the United States, he's a super conservative that was the enemy of Iran. So it really depends on where you're looking at it from. But in reality, he was probably a pragmatist. Uh, I never, obviously never met him, but he's probably a pragmatist is what would be the best term to put him as. And one of the big things that his death is going to have on Iran is he was actually one of the pushers of President Rouhani to get into power. 
he was one of the guys who was able to kind of convince everyone around him not to, this is the one to vote for. I remember seeing an article saying before uh, Rafsanjani's support, Khomeini's support was at like 9%. After he gave him support, it was at like 60 or 70. Massive change. So his death is going to have a very big impact on the future president of, or the future runnings of President Rouhani's, I guess, uh, government. Especially because the election has actually come up, coming up of May of this year for the presidential, I guess, elections. And it's kind of strange. President Rouhani has not announced his re-election yet, or his re-election campaign yet. So he has not said definitively whether he is going to run or whether he's not going to run. And one of the theories for this is because Rafsanjani is not there anymore, and if he announces it too early, he's going to be attacked by the hardliners relentlessly, and he's not going to have anyone to fall back on, really. Yeah, so that's that's kind of my question, Stephen, is, is if... You can, and Rafsanjani has these bona fides, right, as, as being this this figure who's had all this experience and, and these this, this like long career. Is there any other figures that you can think of that support Rouhani and have a similar weight um, who could step into that void? That have a similar weight? Probably not. I mean, I mean um, yeah, right. It's hard to find was, that. Well, and it's even a, it's very impressive because as a number of commentators kept saying, oh, well, the death of Rouhani, or Rouhani, I'm sorry, the death of Rafsanjani means nothing because his influence was diminished anyways. Yeah, well, when you take a hundred uh, power level of 100, if we're going to say that, and decrease it to 70, yeah, you've decreased, but you're still more powerful than the majority of the other people out there. Really, the major Ayatollahs out there, I wouldn't say too many of them support the liberal agenda as of right now. When you say liberal agenda, it's liberal in terms of Iranian politics, so it's not liberal as what you'd think in American politics, but I can't think of any off the top of my head that would be comparable to losing that sort of support or would be able to make up for losing that sort of support. I guess my question's a little bit related to that. Would Rouhani himself be able to kind of step into that void and take up the mantle of moderate policy in Iran? No way, unfortunately. And it's that has to do with more history in terms of Rouhani was so, uh, kind of involved with the revolution, but Rafsanjani was integral to the revolution. If you've heard of the concept uh, in China of the, basically the Mao's generals in China, when their kids were born, their kids were basically royalty because they had this ancestry back to the revolution. And what we're seeing in Iran is that you have to have a absolutely firm connection to the revolution. You can't even be the son of someone from the revolution. For instance, Ayatollah um, Khomeini's son or grandson is actually an avowed liberal to <laughs> most people's surprise in the United States. And because of that, he's actually shot down a lot. He wasn't allowed to run for a couple positions that he wanted to go for. He was eliminated from them. His ancestry as the grandson of Ayatollah Khomeini, which you would think would hold some weight, doesn't. It's. I was going to ask Stephen, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but uh, this seems like something that can't last forever, right? You know, it's at some point you have to have a new generation of leaders or at least a, a move away from, uh, did you literally fight in the revolution? Did you literally support all of these things as opposed to, you know, are, even your heritage, right? Or, or 
um, I, I support the ideals of it, but here's how we should adjust that. Is there room for uh, any kind of progressive uh, leftward move within this, this government? Or is it sounds like it's going to be trapped in a cycle of trying to harken back to a glorious past without making any progress? I think that until they are all gone, and for those of you listening that don't know when the revolution happened, the revolution happened in 1979. So it wasn't right. all that far back. Not ancient history here. Yeah. No, by <laughs> no means. And so there's a lot of these people that are still alive. And I think while these people are still alive, it's going to be very hard to say, very hard to get off that sort of, you weren't there sort of policies. And honestly, I don't know of anyone besides maybe, like Khomeini has gained a fair amount of power, I guess, in within the liberal circles at least. But you're not going to have anyone near with the ability to arbitrate that people have nowadays. And obviously there are some Ayatollahs out there who are not arbiters. I'm forgetting one of their names right now. It's uh, Yazdi. Uh, Ayatollah Yazdi is a pretty hardcore uh, conservative. And those are the type of people that are kind of existing now that a lot of the liberals are just getting older and dying. Or moderates are getting older and dying, I want to say. Yes, how long is this sustainable for? Because, I mean, there's more and more popular support for moderates in Iran, just like public support, isn't there? Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's one of so, the... Oh, sorry. So how long can they keep this up? Until they're I dead. I mean, I guess I could pose the same question to you as I did to Kurt. Could we reasonably expect an Iranian spring in the coming decades that would fundamentally challenge the assumptions of the current Iranian state. Well, and I think we did have that with the Green Revolution in 2009, but that was put down pretty hard. And in Iran, you have, do have a dual state where you have the political government on the left side, and then you have the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps on the right side. And they both have the same amount of power, arbitrated by the supreme leader who was on top. And no matter where the political system moves, that Revolutionary Guard Corps will always be ultra-conservative, or at least for a very foreseeable future, be ultra-conservative. And those will be the ones where if this sort of uh, revolution happens, like 2009 again, they will be put down. Because there is no way that the political system can really impact the Revolutionary Guard system unless the Supreme Leader changes in a absolutely fantastical way. So you'd have to have Khomeini die and be replaced with someone who is not only sympathetic to liberal, I guess, impulses, but actively championing them. Because to change that sort of structure, you'd be saying to the entire, for instance, if it was this was happening in the United States, you'd basically be saying to the entire structure of the U.S. military, you're no longer relevant. Go with it. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up Khomeini dying because that's a very strong likelihood in, you know, say the next ten years or so. Oh, certainly. And the person that would be selected from, um, you're gonna have to remind me of the name of the exact body, the the, the Guardian Council, I believe. The Guardian Council that selects the the next Supreme Ayatollah. I mean, nobody in the running is anywhere close to being considered a liberal, correct? I wouldn't go with that. I mean, you have, uh, I'm forget, Katami. Katami was definitely a liberal, mm -hmm. and he wanted to pursue good relations with just about every country, 
Um, he was very forward-looking in terms of domestic policies. But Katami is currently under house arrest, I believe. And these there are a couple other uh, liberal leaders who have been in house arrest since the 2009 revolts. So while these people might exist, and they do exist, they're just right now sidelined because one of the biggest... I guess, jobs of the Supreme Leader is to keep balance between the conservatives and the liberals. And I think that, honestly, looking at it completely objectively, Khamenei is doing a pretty good job of that, even though we all look at him, and I do believe he is avowedly super arch-conservative over there. But you can also look at it and say, the liberals are actually doing something, and he is not completely shutting the lid on it. He's not shutting the lid on... He, when President Rafsanjani, or when Rafsanjani was president, he didn't shut the lid on Rafsanjani's interactions with other countries. When Katami was president, he didn't immediately shut the lid on Katami's interactions. Rouhani is president, and he doesn't shut the lid on Rouhani interacting with the Gulf countries, with European countries, trying to uh, get the JCPA uh, done. So... I don't know if you can expect anything different, personally. It sounds like, once again, we're stuck in not a holding pattern, but an indefinite stretch of similar politics. Yes, and I, I will say, in terms of every country in the Middle East, I do believe that, <laughs> and you guys will probably disagree with me, that uh, Iran probably represents one of the most democratic countries in the Middle East in terms of... they actually do have popular sentiment. They, uh, A lot of their elections are actually based on domestic politics. They're based on whether we're going to impose austerity, when we're, whether we're going to continue tax refunds, or whether we're going to... One of the big things that Rouhani was actually elected for, other than just foreign policy, was trying to establish low-cost housing across Tehran and the country. You don't see these sorts of democratic politics all the time in a lot of these other countries. or And even when you look at Israel, which is avowedly a democratic country, they do discriminate against a fair amount of their people. I'm not sure whether, <laughs> Kurt, you would call Turkey a democracy anymore. Yeah, that was a last week thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's. I have a lot of hope for Iran going forward. I don't know how they're going to abridge that dual government system of the Iranian Republican Guards, because whenever you, and that's another thing to know, whenever you hear about these, like the ships that, uh, some Iranian patrol boats went up to an American ship and completely ignored American warnings, and so the Americans had to fire some warning shots out over them. And that was the Iranian Republican Guard. And it's very, very important that we disassociate those sorts of actions from the political system, because those are actions by the Iranian Republican Guard meant to destabilize the political situation, which they see as threatening to themselves. So when Iran says that it's going to build naval bases in Yemen and in Syria, that's the Republican Guard, and to somewhat extent that is the political system trying to get rid of the nuclear ambitions, which have been so taxing and so painful to them. So, yeah, it's... I have a lot of hope for Iran, honestly. Well, you did a good job making it positive. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, finding a way to slip some positivity in our segments here and there. We could finally end on a positive. Note. <laughs> Hooray! We've got to end right now, Nick. I mean, it, it won't. 
that's that's the positive thing. It's like it won't be an America right. friendly yeah. regime, but at least it'll be kind of stable. Should we? Sh- so I guess that's a win. Stable hey, and a... it's liberalizing. And I mean, if you look at what is it? Out of every country in the middle, well, out of most countries in the Middle East, Iran has one of the most positive American sentiments. There, people love Americans. They just don't love the American government. Yeah, it's that's tricky, isn't it? Oh, on a personal note, I did want to say to, I guess, the three of us that what we are doing now is incredibly, and to everyone else, stuff like this, micromedia sort of stuff, is going to be incredibly important in the coming years because of what we've seen from on the first few days of the Trump administration, which I'm hoping for them to succeed because I do have a positive hope for everything. But they are looking like they are going to be still saying lies across every official way they can, which means small and even, I guess, large media outlets are going to become very important in the future to understanding and to actually mm-hmm. realizing U.S. policy in these areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, if you're listening to this, come on, we need your help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, get the word out. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen and Kurt, for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Our podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and all of your other favorite podcast sites. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.